Hey listeners, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. On this episode of Spilling Buckets, I sit down with Dan Favalli. Dan writes for Bleacher Report, is the co-host of the Hardwood Knox podcast and deputy editor of NBA Math. We dive into the happy meeting between NBA analytics and the eye test, discuss intriguing sophomores, and then decide if certain players are viable number twos on championship teams. I am then joined by Kyle Vaughn to chat about his five takeaways from the Super Bowl. joined by Dan Favalli. Um, just to give a quick overview, Dan, I'd love to hear about your journey just as a, um, an NBA media, where you started, kind of what you're currently working on, um, how you got here. If you can just jump into that, that'd be great. Yeah, so I started um, writing for Bleach Report probably over a decade ago, and that's transformed a lot over the past you know, 10, 11 years, um, went from doing a lot of on-site stuff to now working, as you can see, from a home office slash whatever you want to call this office that I'm in above a garage. But um, it's been quite a change doing remote stuff for the past like three to four years, basically, where it's like 90, 95% just working remotely. But um, it's been a good trip. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a ton of work. The hours are crazy, but I get to cover a game as an adult um, full-time for a living. So I was lucky enough to latch on with Bleach Report when they first started and um, doing the side project at MBA Math with one of my Bleach Report colleagues who is also just the brainchild behind MBA Math, um, Adam Promel. That's just been a blast to kind of intersect the idea of let's put out quality writing or context since we don't do a ton of writing over there anymore along with all like some of the um, advanced metrics or just um, metrics in general. Yeah, Dan, as far as NBA math, have you always been very into the analytical side of basketball or is that something that kind of started um, started years ago or something you always were into? Uh, I wouldn't say I was always into it, probably like a little bit more. I, I always care about numbers when I first started writing, but as they became like more available and just like the minutiae was just more in depth, I understand that I cannot see or think the game in real time as well as other people. And so numbers help me a great deal to understand what I'm seeing or help inform what I need to look for. And so that influences my writing a lot where there definitely needs to be a balance between, yes, you need to watch the games, you need to watch these players, you need to go back and watch film. But I view analytics as super important. And the fact that we have numbers tracking data that just gets so thorough at this point is is hugely helpful and has had a huge impact on my career. And so I would say easily for the past seven to nine years, I've been, you know, there are other people like Adam himself or, or Seth part now, like those are just the super smart genius guys. And that's never been me, but like, I do really appreciate the analytics that go behind everything. Again, specifically those just like granular 
uh, metric details that the NBA has made widely available to everyone. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the whole analytical obsession kind of began with baseball. And I feel like that's a sport where it's almost hard to even value an eye test where these players are almost considered math formulas. But in the NBA, yeah, it's definitely a mixture between that eye test and the analytics. And I think a lot of people may struggle with, especially if you're writing, how much do I want to focus on the analytics? How much do I want to focus on more less, not so not exactly opinion based, but more so what I'm seeing. So I think it's definitely a, a happy medium. That's hard to find even when you're watching the game. Yeah. And I mean, look, there are just some people who specialize in analytics, so they're going to lean on them heavily. And then there's other guys who just break down a ton of film. And so I think the challenge for people like myself who don't really exist in either one of those spaces is to find that middle ground that you talked about. And it, it can be tricky, but it's re it really just only becomes a problem if you're not doing one or the other. If you're just not paying attention to the numbers and you're just insisting that so-and-so is a good three-point shooter, even though he's like 23% for his career, like there, there has to be some some give and take there. So I've found it a lot easier as, as time has gone on. Um, like I said, though, I think what really helps and makes it easier to find that middle ground is just how specific the the data has gotten. And if you have access to synergy and you can see now how much teams are switching, how much time they're, they're spending in zone, um, I would say that's probably still the most imperfect. Um, when you're looking at metrics, the toughest thing still to quantify is defense. Like that's so much for me. It's like reading looking at certain numbers, watching. Um, but I think that's always going to be something I, I kind of struggle with, uh, especially when you're trying to like gauge value where it's, I feel like on ball defense is a little easier to maybe not quantify, but at least recognize where off ball defense, there's just all these other things happening. And so to, to recognize that, you know, Jason Tatum being the mo one of the most disruptive off ball defenders, that takes a lot of repetition or, or just something that you really have to look for. Yeah. That was what, that was actually what I was going to ask you, because I think it's the defense is where you can't only look at the analytics. Like for example, um, I know a lot of people think that Dennis Schroeder has been a solid defender for the Lakers this year and that he's improved, but I think the analytics would tell you that he's probably one of the weaker defenders. So it's tough to gauge that, or even a guy like James Harden, who everyone assumes is a horrible defender who might actually be a benefit in the post. So I think it's, that's one of the areas of the game. Is there a specific, I know you just mentioned, looking at rotations and stuff like that, is there a specific defensive metric or a few that you've um, focused on this season or the past few seasons that you, that you think is a pretty good representation? I've gotten away from not, uh, I still use some of the catch-alls like NBA math has defensive points saved. Um, we have defensive um, RPM. There's regularized adjusted, um, you know, plus minus for the defensive side. Um, I've kind of looked at more like positionally where let's use like a rim protector as an example where Joel Embiid, where you kind of look at um, not just the percentage that he's allowing at the rim, but like how often does a team get there when he's on the floor? Um, how many shots is he blocking? You know, mid-range shots is he blocking like a little bit away from the rim? And something that I've found fascinating with some players too is like, well, how frequently are teams actually abandoning short mid-range looks when a certain player's on the floor? And Joel Embiid is one of those guys where this season it looks like he's coming out higher, where he's not just sort of camping as much around the rim. And the data will actually support that because teams, it's not just they're getting to the rim less, they're taking a ton. Um, they're not taking as many short mid-rangers because they just don't want to challenge him. And so if you do that by position, um, it's it's kind of easier with bigs. It gets really tough where you mentioned the, the perimeter guys because the, the tracking data there is just imperfect where you can't, you know, it's cool to say like so-and-so has contested X three-point shots or um, players are shooting 10 percentage points below their season average outside 15 feet against them. But that's just so... Uh, imperfect and a guy like Dennis Schroeder where it's like I think he probably has played better on the ball this year but if you're going to it's sort of the Clay Thompson fallacy or the the Avery Bradley conundrum where it's like you see what these guys are doing and they're impactful 
but because they're not necessarily these great team defenders or they're zeroing in on one person a lot of the time, um, they're not going to be as impactful when you're looking at certain metrics. And um, the NBA does make partial possessions covered available to a lot of people. And so I think that's pretty useful where I won't necessarily look at, uh, you know, James Harden shot three of seven against uh, Brandon Ingram or something on a given night. I might just look at, okay, Brandon Ingram defended James Harden out of partial possession 25 times this season. How many points did now would be the net score on those possessions to kind of see what the team impact was like, did he force the ball out of James Harden's hands, but it's still just all um, so imperfect. And there's data out there that I don't even have access to that I think is really useful. And like I said, when you're looking at it from a team standpoint, if you have the access to synergy where you can see switches, where you can see the times that teams are going into zones, but I don't know if we'll ever get to a point where numbers can truly contextualize um, uh, defensive value. Um, I don't, nothing is perfect, but even close to ideally. Yeah. And then even on the defensive side too, you'd have to think that so many of these metrics for individual players has to be so reliant on the system they're playing, the type of defenders they're playing with. I think, I think that people may undervalue the casual fan that a certain player's defensive abilities is heavily reliant on, on the system he's in or um, the guys that he's surrounded with. Right. Yeah, and I think that's where you get into the issue where people cite individual defensive rating. And there's maybe there's a time and place for that, but I've generally – I don't think I've actually ever done it. Um, I'd be more inclined to look at you know the defensive rating swing. And even that can be imperfect where it's happened a lot in Phoenix, particularly earlier this season, where all their starters, the Suns were just so much worse with them on the floor. And then you're watching DeAndre Ayton, who I think has been mostly fantastic um, to really good at least defensively this year. And the on-off splits just don't support that. And so um, – if you see something like that, that's when you want to go investigate further and maybe look more at the film there. So those are, I still think on off numbers are a really good way to um, contextualize things like that, but you do have to take into account the level of, of competition that they're facing and then any sort of noise that could be found in that. And you mentioned a team setting. It could be as easy as certain lineups. That's something that we saw with Anthony Davis a little bit this season, but definitely last season where the Lakers were better or only slightly better with him on the court um, defensively but he's trying to uplift these lineups outside of the starting unit where there's just, they would not be able to function if Anthony Davis was not on the court. And so dragging them to league average defensive efficiency across, let's say 300 possessions or something is like an actual feat. So there's just, there's noise in everything, but it's, it's more so I think on defense, it's easier for that stuff to, um, to get lost or to sort of gum up the, the returns. If you're focusing again, solely on the numbers. Yeah. And even with the numbers too, especially this early in the season, I was looking at a lot of, on off numbers with the Nets trio. And there's just, there's not enough of a sample size to definitively say that they're better with two out of those three guys on the floor yet. Um, so we'll see there as far as from an offensive standpoint, um, I know you mentioned on off, do you value the plus minus in small sample sizes? Or is that something you only really like to look at um, later on in the season? I think raw plus minus is probably valuable in small sample sizes. Uh, especially for a playoff series for me. And I, the one I keep always using an example was the, the Raptors Sixer series from 2019, where it's Philadelphia lost that series and the minutes Joel Embiid didn't play. They were like a plus 100 with him. And then in the 30 something minutes he spent off the court, they were outscored by like a trillion points. And so I think it's useful there uh, looking at, and I looking at net ratings would probably be more useful across some um, larger sample sizes, same things with, um, lineups for me, just being able to do that to scale, but even recognizing when you're getting into lineups, um, you have to recognize those are smaller samples. So maybe it's, you know, plus minus can be useful there as well. Um, across an entire season though, if, if you're looking at team, I would value net rating um, a lot 
more in larger samples than I would um, plus minus. I do think maybe across larger samples, plus minus is more valuable for individual players um, in that. But that's even all that stuff is going to be impacted by the you know when they're playing, who they're playing against, and, and the teammates that that they have. Which is why I do love um, things like luck adjusted RAPM, where they try and account for that. And even that's not imperfect. I don't even necessarily know the formula behind that. And I use the one that's available at NBA shot charts.com, but something like that seems to, when you look at the players that typically end up near the top value in either side of those metrics, both offensively and defensively, it does align with a lot of what you're seeing. Yeah, definitely. And then just a few more tidbits on just the analytics. Do you weigh a good amount in the clutch time? I know that's something that's discussed a lot and it can be measured differently across uh, uh, certain platforms, but do you, do you look at that? I can't. <sighs> I look at that a lot. It's just, those are such small sample sizes relative to like what could be these huge sample sizes across the season. But I think it's noteworthy where it's like at one point this season, um, Chris Paul was shooting like 60 something percent on twos outside the restricted area in crunch time. And if that's a 20 shot sample size, I think it was 12 or 13 of 20 when I looked at the time. Yeah, that's small, but that's also like, okay, well, and then last season in the case of the Mavericks, it's, they went from having the best offensive rating of all time overall to having, I think it was like one of the bottom three offensive ratings in the clutch. And you don't want to say, Oh, the Mavericks just their their offense is overrated. You want to go back and look and see, okay, well, what's going into that. And then you find out like, well, they don't really have that traditional second shot creator in lineups that they're running to, to Luca. And then even this year um, you look at their shot profile in the clutch and it's like, okay, more than half their shots are coming from beyond the arc in crunch time. And they're just not hitting those. And so that that's a problem. There's just those could be more prolonged to swings, though, because, like I said, it's such a small sample size. But those numbers are absolutely useful because, you know, close games matter. Like those are things that can swing playoff seeds or whether or not a team gets into the playing tournament. And especially as you get deeper into the season where what are we a third of the way now? I'd probably say soon, if not already, like those numbers start to become super useful when you're looking at, okay, well, which team can you count on to defend well or to shoot well? Which players can you count on in those situations when the game is on the line? Yeah, and some of those stats you just brought up actually mesh a little bit with the eye test. For example, the Chris Paul elbow jumper at the at the free throw line seems to never miss it. Or even until we the saw, end of time, that will just be a weapon. Yeah, player. exactly. Yeah. I mean, we even saw last year. I think he was the best clutch player in the league last year as well. And that that uh, small ball three they had in OKC he was able to take Houston to seven games. Just end of the games dominated. Um, I wanted to get into a little bit of a different topic here. Before the season, I was looking at what I viewed as some of the more intriguing sophomores heading into the season. And I listed Tyler Hero, Zion Williamson, and Michael Porter Jr. as the three I wanted to keep an eye on. Um, Obviously, some of that's changed a third of the way through the season. But are there any sophomores that you've really enjoyed watching or that you think have taken a huge leap this season? Looking at a leap, um, I think with Zion, a lot of people have criticized his defense, which is probably fair. I think he might be a little bit better, at least on the ball this season than he was last year. But offensively, people just view him as this guy who can put raw pressure on the rim, which is absolutely what he does. But he just there's more of a grace element to his offense when you look at him handling the ball. Um, I haven't looked since last week, but he was shooting like a trillion percent in isolation this year. And he can really dribble around guys, put his back to the basket. And so there's some finesse there. There's some self-creation there. A lot more of his baskets are going unassisted. So I've been impressed with how that's come along, given the tight spaces within which he's working. And even his rim pressure this season, he's he's so good at the rim and he gets there so often. And it still feels like the Pelicans leave points on the table because there's just not enough spacing around him to get to the rim more, or they're not spending enough time in, in transition this year. 
Um, Tyler Hero, he hasn't made a leap. I have been very impressed, though, with his finishing. I don't know what he's improved so much just beyond the arc. I don't know where I land on the Tyler Hero point guard experiment, though. Those The on-off splits for those lineups are terrible. I think that's part of the the grooming process here where he's trying to take on this new role for, for larger spurts. I don't know if he necessarily has that uh, really in him, but just his finishing overall on offense, that's that's been impressive to me this season amid those those struggles. And maybe him yeah. going through these growing pains now when you're looking at him trying to run an offense or take these tough off-the-dribble jumpers from beyond the arc, that will benefit the Heat later. On a more, I think Michael Porter Jr. has been fine, probably everything I expected from him, um, if not a little bit disappointing when you look at just his size, that he could be better defensively. Um, some other sophomores that have stood out to me, um, and maybe some of them go into the weeds, but of no, late, um, Juan, yeah, Juan Toscano-Anderson for the Warriors yeah. has just been, you know, that guy's going to turn over the ball a ton, but he makes a ton of hustle plays, good rebounder for his size. He's been a pretty good passer um, this year, just in small spurts. Before his injury, DeAndre Hunter um, improved a great deal inside the arc. Uh, that was just a huge swing. And then, you know, there was talk leading into the draft um, in 2019 and I'm not someone who covers college basketball, but everyone was like, he needs to be a four. He can't defend wings. And I feel like this year he was defending a ton of point guards. So um, he's made just some really great strides defensively and offensively. And it kind of sucked to see him um, get injured. Darius Garland has been a joy. The, the shooting is real and it feels like he's a better feel for the game and that it slowed down for him in Cleveland. And um, the last one in this onslaught, I don't know that he's made a leap, but I find him thoroughly enjoyable to watch. Keldon Johnson might be the most reckless player in the <laughs> NBA, and I absolutely love it. And his three-point shooting needs to be better, but he can be a physical defender, um, someone who might be able to defend one through four at this point. And then just looking at the way he tries to barrel through traffic, and it never really looks pretty. Like, it feels like he should be a terrible shooter around the rim and inside the arc, but it somehow works right now. So if he can kind of augment his game to include – better shooting and maybe just a little bit more like grace as opposed to just, you know, pure unadulterated chaos when he's barreling towards the rim. Um, that's someone to keep an eye on where he could really end up, you know, defining the Spurs future. Yeah. I mean, hopefully he'll be able to stay healthy. Another guy that I've enjoyed um, is Darius Basley. He's kind of been hit or miss on certain nights. Um, I mean, he's been putting up double doubles the past week or two. But a guy like Tyler Hero, um, do you think his ceiling is that high? Or do you think that we kind of, a lot of people kind of overreacted to what they saw in a short sample size in the bubble last year? I'd probably lean more towards the latter. And I, I think I've been lower on him than the consensus for the most part. Um, I don't know if that's fair. And even his shot making in the bubble, it was like, yeah, he was hitting these difficult looks, but the efficiency wasn't incredible. Uh, he's also only 21 though. And so it feels like sort of rude to put a cap on his ceiling. If you want him to turn into the Devin Booker of the East, uh, I, I need to see more as a playmaker from him. Like, I think you can buy into the shot making, getting there again. I, I think he's improved as a finisher inside the, um, the arc. He was shooting last time I checked, like a really good percentage on drives, especially compared to, to last year. But the playmaking feel, I don't know that I necessarily see it yet. It feels like he's trying to make the right decisions, but there's, you know, there, there's turnover woes there, and the, the offense just kind of looks weird when he's the guy running the show. Maybe having a healthy Jimmy Butler and a healthy Tyler Hero at the same time as we move forward will we'll end up making that a little bit easier. I just don't see that yet, but I don't know that we said that about Devin Booker in his year two either, where he was viewed as this empty calorie scorer. Um, but I would, I would argue, you know, I guess the best way to contextualize it is when people talk about Miami, they're like, can they use Tyler hero 
um, to either develop that next star or get that star in Bradley Beal um, as the next star player who could be moved. And I don't view him necessarily as the same type of trade chip on the level of a um, Michael Porter Jr., um, even a James Wiseman at this point. I might still prefer long-term over Tyler Hero. But again, I kind of respect the experiment that the Heat have gone through this season because if it hits, that ends up being a huge deal, whether you view him as a keeper long-term or someone that you can use to maybe spice up a trade package. Yeah. And just a question that popped in my head when you brought up Beal, if you're Denver, who some assume would be a suitor for him, would you rather, um, would you rather get rid of Murray or Porter Jr.? We actually had this conversation on my podcast, my co-host and I, and yeah. we both landed on, we'd rather move Jamal Murray. I agree. I think, I think just because of the level of inconsistency there's right now, I think in any given game, he probably has the higher ceiling. I mean, we saw it in the bubble last year, he can swing an entire playoff series. Michael Porter jr. Might be that guy though. And he plays a more, especially for Denver, he plays a bigger position of need on the wings. And how important is Jamal Murray when you already have Jokic who has been, you know, for the past two or three years, he's been exceptional in the clutch too, where you look at the nuggets and you're like, okay, they need that face up weapon in crunch time, but Jokic is managing and you have Michael Porter jr. If you can get Beal in a deal for Murray and let's say other stuff, I don't know what that stuff is. I think your team is substantially better. And Beal probably isn't ha- even has the higher defensive ceiling when he decides to play it. Um, Murray was really physical on defense in the bubble last year, but we're in year, you know, give him a grace period in his first couple seasons in the league, but it feels like we're in year three of like, is this roller coaster ever going to to level off? Where can he play better than, you know, some of the stretches are long, four weeks, five weeks. But like, can he get beyond those five week, six week periods and like just find this this normal? And it doesn't feel like he's he's definitely not doing it right now. So if if I was Denver, that is something I would consider if I was forced to choose. Yeah, I was one of those that thought Bubble Murray was more sustainable in the regular season. But I guess at least so far this season, that hasn't the case. I'd also like to see Michael Porter Jr.'s role grow a little bit. I know he was out um, with the health and health and safety protocols and um wasn't didn't get the playing time he probably wanted last year, but he's he's shooting. I think he's shooting fifty percent, forty three percent from three on eleven shots tonight. I mean, I'd like to see those shot attempts go up a little bit for him. I think his offensive game is is limitless. Yeah, I mean, he's a six ten dude who can handle the ball like a guard basically and just shoot over the top of anyone. Um, he needs to defend better though, and yeah. there were, there were flashes last year. I haven't seen probably because he was absent for so long, so I just haven't seen as much of him in general. Um, but last year it looked like he would make some smart rotations for long periods of time, but I, I haven't seen the same thing from him this year. And if you can trust Jamal Murray a little bit more on defense than Michael Porter Jr., like that's probably a you know a huge problem. But long term, I mean, that's the guy. And you bring up an interesting point too with his shot attempts. It's whether you have Jamal Murray or you have Bradley Beal, like does it get to a point where he's just unsatisfied with his role in general? And we kind of did he hinted that in the playoffs, um, the bubble last year, whatever it was, where he said something along those lines. So that might be something that Denver has to weigh when they're when they're making their next 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 move because he, you know, he missed his rookie season and so he's technically a sophomore now, but he's extension eligible this summer. And so you're talking about you're getting to a point where you have to reinvest in him too. Yeah, absolutely. Now, all interesting enough, there's a lot of intriguing sophomores overall in this league. Um, I wanted to get to a little scenario here, just looking at asking if you think these guys that I'm going to list off could be number two options on a championship team. I think that's something that's often debated. Is this guy closer? Can he be number two option or is he more number three? So I wanted to just list off a few guys, maybe one at a time and see what you think. Um, I'm ready. Starting, what's up? I said, I'm ready or I might <laughs> be ready. 
All right. I was going to start with uh, kind of an obvious one and Chris Middleton. So you're asking the wrong person because I, Chris Middleton is among my basketball muses. He is <laughs> criminally underweighted for what he can do. And if he can't be a number two um, on a Bucks team that wins the championship, I would argue that says more about Giannis Attentacumpo's limitations than his. Uh, just super solid. He's probably been overrated a little bit as a defender. Like you don't want him going up against those bigger wings, but positions one through three, like he's fine there. And he is a scorer from every level you get. His, his game kind of stalls out before the rim a little bit, but he's so money from the mid-range, it doesn't matter. He can hit those unassisted three-pointers, and he can run the offense for you. I mean, we're in year three or four of the Bucks' offense just being um, a firecracker when he plays with without Giannis. So uh, we're talking about someone who I think this year probably won't make it when you look at the wing depth, but he's fringe all-NBA. And if that's not a number two on a championship team, I don't necessarily know who is at that point. Now you're yeah. saying – you need to have a two top 15 players then. And your, you know, top, your second guy has to be what between top 10 and top 19. Cause I would say Middleton's in that top 20 to 25 range at the moment. Yeah. I mean, this is probably a topic for a different day, but I, I think Giannis is a number two. So I think that's part of the problem in Milwaukee. Um, the next guy that's I have, a, we just, I was just, I didn't even mean to interrupt that. That's an interesting concept. He's just so what he can do defensively, even though he's not guarding the, the top guy, uh, it's look if if they flame out in the playoffs again and he's part of the reason to blame we might that might be a conversation that needs to be had yeah i mean well while we're on Giannis, i've been saying for a while how i think he's one of the most boring superstars to watch i mean a guy that's won back-to-back mvps i personally you would think that a guy would be more entertaining to watch maybe it's just the style of his game but do you enjoy watching the bucks do you enjoy watching Giannis? Yeah, I enjoy watching Giannis for sure. I think maybe we're numb to the way the Bucs play at this point because all the wrinkles, they've been mo- – the crux of their team has been together for so long, even though they've introduced Drew Holiday, that things like them keeping someone in the dunker spot becomes a big deal because they've played the same way under Coach Bud since he's he's been there. Uh, Giannis I find highly entertaining just because his escapades to the rim are absolutely fan- fantastic. And like I said, I voted um, – he was my defensive player of the year last year and he ended up winning it. He's to watch him on disrupt plays and not being the primary defender on those plays. Um, I enjoy watching that and not so much this season, but I liked that he was taking pull up threes last year and that he was trying those fadeaways from mid range and that he was seeming, he was trying to counter what defenses were throwing at him. But we're at a point now where it hasn't made him less enjoyable to watch, but we have to have a conversation about, well, should he be taking those pull up threes What's the point of him taking those fadeaways? Can we get to a point where the Bucks are using him even more often as a screener? And is he going to be happy with that because it takes the ball out of his hands? I think you can argue he's the uh, third best passer on his own team. Um, definitely second. Drew Holiday's got to be better than him, and Middleton might be closer there. It's just the chaos he creates with the ball in his hands. So I, I still enjoy watching him a, a great deal, but there needs to be a point where he's developed some sort of counter to, to defenses, and it might just be – hey, shoot 80% from the foul line instead of like 59 or wherever he's at at the moment. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do in closing time as the season progresses, how much they involve Holiday and Middleton. But the next guy I had, I think I kind of know where you're leaning here, is Jamal Murray. I would say no. I mean, he comes pretty close when you have a guy like Jokic next to him, that top five player. So you could say that everyone comes super close. The level, the type of game he plays, the answer is yes. Can he sustain it? for, you know, Kemba Walker levels this season, notwithstanding. And we've yet to see that from him. Yeah. All right. The next guy I had is 
taking a huge leap this year. If he could be a number two on a championship team right now is uh, Jalen Brown. Yeah, absolutely. For me, um, the, I guess neither he nor Jason Tatum are like these traditional playmakers, but Jalen Brown, Jalen Brown's passing has gotten a lot better. And it's not just, you know, he's not even necessarily running a ton of pick and rolls. It's the decision-making on drives or his standstill passing. That feels like it's gotten a lot better. What he's always done defensively has been super important for them. And now you're adding in a guy who was already an efficient three-point shooter and he's hitting some more off the dribble looks. Um, That's absolutely monstrous. And so I would say he can absolutely be the number two on a title team. Yeah, while we're on the Celtics, do you think Kemba is a viable enough number three for them, especially given how much he got hunted in the playoffs last year? Do you think the Celtics have a chance in the East if they don't make a move? I, it really depends on how healthy Kemba Walker is. He just doesn't look um, right at the moment. And if they get the Kemba Walker that they signed, I would say yes to all of the above. There'll be a threat in the East, and Kemba Walker can be a viable number three. It does still feel, I think Danny Ainge said it, they need like a, a bigger shooter. Um, and someone who can help them kind of still be dynamic on defense, but you're not playing the Thompson Tice lineups that we've seen this year, which have not been all that effective. So I, this season, it feels like the Celtics are missing something. If Kemba Walker's healthy though, he might end up being like that. One of the biggest swing pieces in the league because a healthy Kemba Walker is top 25, top, top 30 guy. Yeah. We'll see if maybe they look at a guy like PJ Tucker, um, would be great for them. Even a, yeah. I know Harrison Barnes has been floated there. I've long been a proponent. He's injured now, so I don't know how realistic it is, but Aaron Gordon would be just a great fit there. Play the four, play small ball five, and you just don't – he's a good enough standstill shooter where you don't necessarily need him to do too much with the ball in his hand, so they might be a team that can optimize him more than Orlando. Yeah. The next guy I had, uh, Zach Levine, obviously plays on a less talented team, but he's been putting up pretty special offensive numbers. So you think if he's put on the right team, he could be your number two guy? I equivocate and go back and forth on him. Uh, someone who can shoot basically 40 plus percent on off the dribble threes and his passing has made a leap. The turnovers are still coming in droves, but when you just watch him and teams are doubling him when he's coming around screens or just when he gets into the lane, he's just making smarter passes. Some of them are the less obvious passes. So I want to lean. Yes. Especially when you're looking at his age, um, the bulls have also seemed to do this thing. And I say this with, I probably haven't watched the bulls in over a week. So Maybe I'm just, but it feels like they're just throwing him on guys that he shouldn't be defending. And he like, hasn't done that poorly. He's still a bad defender, but if you're going to compete against like higher level guys, there might be some value to that. Uh, if I, if I had to choose, I think I probably still, I'm going to say yes. Okay. I was, I've definitely been no up until this point, but you just look at the shot profile and just the passing leap. I think if he's not the number, he, cause he's number one in Chicago. If you put him, with, I don't even know who the number two needs to be, but if you put him on Philly with Joel Embiid, um, could you argue that he's the number two over Ben Simmons? Maybe not the better player, but the number two offensive option, maybe. Yeah. So I'll say yes, conservatively. Yeah, no, it's been frustrating. Um, the Bulls, of the Bulls games that I have watched, a lot of times in the games, it seems like Kobe White's dribbling the air of the ball and Levine's kind of standing on the wing where you kind of want him initiating the offense. Um, but we'll see. Which is terrifying in itself because I don't know that you want Zach Levine initiating the offense that much anyway. He's done yeah. better, but it's like with the turnover problems, uh, the Bulls would benefit from having a – I don't know how workable it is with both Kobe White and Zach Levine, but if you put an actual floor general there, I think that's why Lonzo is so popular. I don't know if he's the guy because he can't generate dribble penetration, but that pass-first high IQ player, you plug him beside Levine and maybe Kobe White in smaller lineups, and that feels like the best way to maximize the two of them. Yeah. And the next guy I had, this is 
kind of fringy um, is Malcolm Brogdon. Ooh, I would have to say no. I feel like his game is too predicated on others opening the floor for him. When you look at like his power drives and even his three point shooting, there's, and we saw it last year and we're, we've probably, he's played better this year and, but we'll see it in time with all the injuries and absences the Pacers have had. You can only rely on him creating offense to a certain extent. And if he is the go-to guy, even if it's a Sabonis Brogdon lineup, I think where you don't have Warren, you don't have at this point, Karis LeVert, there are some real issues there. So I would say, no, he's probably, it's wild that you could even ask that question (laughs) and it'd be legitimate um, just based off where he was when he won rookie of the year. And everyone thought it was just like a farce. It was just a terrible season, but he's a fringe all-star, but I think ideally he's probably your third or fourth guy on the title team. No, I agree. I agree. I've got two more, two more guys here. Uh, One of them, CJ McCollum, who it's a shame he got injured because before he got hurt, he was strange to say, but was making that stride in what is ninth, 10th season. Do you think he, I mean, he hasn't been able, I guess, with Portland, but you think in a better fit, he could be a number two guy. I do. And I think part of the reason for me is that he's been so money in the playoffs for so long, but the fact that he's proven himself there, um, maybe Damian Lillard can't be the number one in that situation because you need just someone who is, I won't even say you definitely someone who's a better defender, but you probably need more positional variants where it's like, if it's a wing, that's the number one or the big man, that's a number one. That's where it feels like he could be actualized as a number two, but certainly what we've seen this season with the playmaking jump and hitting more um, and taking more off the dribble threes. um, I absolutely believe he could be a number two. Yeah. And then the last guy I had is I would say no is Pascal Siakam who's actually, he's played better of late, um, but I would not feel good about him being my number two guy. So I actually would. I think he's okay. closer to a number one than a number three. Uh, the cold three-point shooting, uh, I think he might be shooting a little bit better over the past couple of games, but the cold three-point shooting is definitely a problem. Um, I think that he shot the past two seasons well enough to show you that, hey, this is still someone who can dribble into those. I call them, and maybe I think other people probably call them semi-transition threes, that Chris Paul has popularized them, where it's like the defense is sort of set, but they're not, and you're just meandering your way into this pull-up three, but you're not really firing quick off the dribble him hitting that is a big deal. And he's done that for basically two seasons, not this one, obviously. What he can bring you defensively still, his playmaking out of the post and on drives this year, I think has improved. And he's been a monster finishing on drives this season. I think since his first four games, when he was absolutely terrible, he's shooting above 60% on drives. And so I think you're probably, he's probably pigeonholed now into that number two ceiling. I still think there's a chance that he could be the number one that the Raptors want him to be. But in my mind, I would absolutely take him as a number two on a title team. Yeah. Were you not deterred by his, by the way, the Celtics were able to kind of shut him down last year in the playoffs? I mean, it's certainly discouraging when you were looking at it in the context of a number one. It's that the the Raptors don't really even have the number one anymore to evaluate Siakam as the number two. They're trying to make him um, essentially their system. Uh, His handle is still a little loosey. I don't know how he's going to hold up. Um, If they get into that setting again, you would hope that just his better decision-making on drives would help him there. He still needs a little bit more, in my opinion, directional variance when he's getting inside the arc, um, the spins to nowhere, as I feel like I've, <laughs> I've been calling them now for a while where it's like, right, you need another counter other than that. Uh, but I think if you see him in a similar situation over the course of a playoff series, assuming that the Raptors get there, I think he'll be better. We've always seen, you know, growth isn't linear. And I think he's improved exponentially basically every year. And this is probably the season where, Yes, the three-point shooting is down, but if you look a little closer, you can see some incremental improvement. And so 
I think it's definitely discouraging if you want him to be the number one, what happened in that Boston series, and even at the beginning of this year. But if you're looking at him as a potential number two, which we should note is, you know, there's no shame in being that. And I know I've, I feel like I've just handed out um, green lights to number twos a ton during this exercise, <laughs> but Pascal Siakam might be the one aside from Chris Middleton, who I'm most confident in being able to be that number two. Yeah. And just to wrap this up, you think Anthony Davis, I mean, I know what the Nets have gone. I think Anthony Davis is the best number two we have in the league right now. Uh, yeah, I think it, I'm trying to think of all, I mean, they're, I guess they're Harden. All yeah, there's, there's, but he's like kind of the number one. So it's Kevin, like he's running the offense. Yeah. So it might be Brooklyn at this point, but they don't defend. And so, like, are they even going to be there when it matters most to be the number two? But I think, yeah, Davis, Davis for sure. Yeah. Do you, are you buying in on the Nets? Do you think they'll win the East or you're still not sold on their, on their play defensively? Yeah. I can't, I don't know how you could be sold on their No, no. I mean, certainly not. <laughs> if, if you are sold on the Nets, I think you're just a firm believer of the offense will outweigh the defensive if, struggles. I don't know how realistic it is when you're looking at the assets that they have, but if they can end up getting like a Thaddeus Young or a PJ Tucker at the trade deadline, uh, you feel a lot better about what they're able to do. Um, I wouldn't pick them to win the East right now. Philly intrigues me a lot more than than they do at the moment. Yeah, I mean, even a guy like DeAndre Jordan, I feel like is unplayable in certain playoff series. There are just points where it looks like he's wearing cinder blocks for shoes <laughs> this season. Yeah, he's been brutal. Uh, Dan, no, I appreciate you uh, coming on the show. It's great to uh, hear your NBA insights, um, especially from an analytical perspective. And I, uh, I enjoyed that exercise. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right. It is Ryan Jacobs joined by Kyle Vaughn. We are looking to recap the Super Bowl. Kyle, you recently came out on SpillingBuckets.net with an article kind of summarizing uh, what you noticed during this game, your five takeaways. If you want to just run through that, we can uh, obviously share our thoughts, but I'd love to hear what you thought of that game, given the fact that we were uh, drastically off on what we expected. Yeah, we were absolutely on the wrong end of uh, history um, and definitely look foolish in hindsight because of – what was my number one takeaway, which is Tom Brady. Um, You know, there's not much more that can be said about what he's accomplished as a football player. He has earned his seventh ring, as we all know, his first year down in Tampa. But to go down and in a row, you take down um, Breeze, Rodgers, and Mahomes, three first ballot Hall of Famers, or what what they will be one day. Um, You know, on the road for the two, underdogs um in all three of them again age 43 first year in a system in a pandemic where there's no real off season um it just speaks to the uh you know the champion that he is yeah i think this goes back to our takeaway from uh, a few weeks ago and obviously he played well um put up a pretty solid stat line on sunday but i think it goes back to the fact that there's just a certain leadership element to tom brady that can't be matched um, you, you see how hard all those guys played for him, how much they admire him, which you'd expect given. And you hear it in the post-game comments too. Exactly. I mean, we, we've seen other greats, um, whether it's LeBron James or um, just anyone in another sport in a team sport where when they win, obviously they're gracious for that guy's performance, but you don't hear 20 guys get up to the podium 
and drool over how well um, a player on their team played and how he led and how he changed the culture. Dude, not even players, coaches too. Exactly. Yeah. Say like the moment that we signed him, we knew that we had a chance to go to the Super Bowl because he, he's there every year. Um, and I mean, how many quarterbacks, I know he apologized for what he said to Tyron Matthew, but how many quarterbacks do you see sprinting at a safety and mouthing him off? I mean, yeah, you, you got to love to see that. One of I like that. Yeah, no, I love it too. He goes into his like psycho Tom uh, mode where he uh, he just goes ballistic. Um, but yeah, I mean, you got to love that the fire is still there after 21 years and at age 43. But yeah, man, I mean, it's just ridiculous. And and you think like winning the Super Bowl is such a momentous occasion, like accomplishment. Um, like you think about there's guys who have won a couple, like Aaron Rodgers has won one, like him doing it so casually every seemingly every other year, he's won the Super Bowl like a third of his years in the NFL. I mean, think about how gigantic of a number seven is in terms of championships. It's just, yeah, and, and this was his easiest one as far as the Super Bowl, the, the game itself. I mean, this, this game fell biggest- over midway through the third quarter, even the celebration. I know that it's a different atmosphere um, with the COVID restrictions, but the, the reaction felt anticlimactic, and it was just – there's that video um, of Brady just packing up his belongings in the locker room after. It's just like, it all right, like, on to next year. Yeah, so, does he not care? <laughs> there's nothing better than when he runs out for these Super Bowls where he sprints down the sideline, throws the fist, and yells, let's fucking go. And it's yeah. just – and I'm sitting there thinking, I put all this money on the Chiefs, told everyone that I know that the Chiefs are going to kill him, and sitting down watching that game – one, I was probably rooting for Brady, and two, the second I see his his energy, I'm immediately questioning my decision making. Yeah, you feel we feel like suckers right away. Um, but the main reason um, that it was such like a drastic um, win for the Bucks um, will take us into our my second key takeaway, which is, you know, that offensive line play um, is evidently pretty important in football in the NFL. <laughs> Um, Mahomes was forced though, to Kyle. It's, What's that? It honestly is a good point though, because we sit here and we, tr- we completely ignore if, if they're, if a quarterback was out, we'd obviously freak out, but because it's a guy on the line, we completely underestimate it. Yeah. And not to be like corny, but the essence of football comes down to like winning on the line of scrimmage, like winning the battle up front, you know, staying in reasonable downs and distances and not forcing it all upon one guy. But we came into this matchup knowing that this um, that obviously the the Chiefs had a ragtag bunch on the offensive line, like they were without both of their starting tackles and an interior lineman, um, and the Bucks front is like lethal. You know they have JPP, Shaq Barrett, and Dominican Sue, Vita Vea, um, and they just absolutely manhandled him the whole game. Um, and Mahomes was still able to make some absolutely ridiculous plays, but. Um, he was playing a different sport compared to what Brady was doing. Yeah, and they were so reluctant to run the football that by the time they realized that they could establish a run game, they're already down by two, three scores. Um, and that's just not really their bread and butter. I mean, they went they they went down with Mahomes when when we saw that they probably should have gotten a running game established earlier. Um, should have changed things up. But it kind of looked like Kansas City just stuck to their stuck to the same game plan they had all season long. 
Um, and it seems it like really what you would got outcoached. Right. I was just going to say it wouldn't, it's not exactly what you would expect given Andy Reed's, um, you know, reputation as an offensive mind. Like you had to have known, like he was at a major disadvantage um, with that matchup in particular. So maybe you think like keep, you know, Kelsey's obviously not going to be blocking on pass plays, but bring in a, a different tight end to help block, um, you know, add in protection with running backs, run the ball more, like you said, like, um, I think he just put all of his eggs in the Mahomes basket and granted that that's worked every time up until now, but, um, I'm sure he's definitely scratching his head. It also felt like the chiefs only had, I know Hill and Kelsey are obviously their best options throwing the football, but it seemed like those are the only two guys that were considered during that game. I mean, they have other talented receivers in Hardman and they, Dude, there's a couple times they throw to Hardman and you're wondering if, like if he's even like looking where the ball yeah there was like, a play early like, in the game on a third down where he looked open and he kind of paused when the ball was in the air i don't think he i don't think he was like looking or expecting the ball to come like you they have all this talent on paper like you said like even aside from kelsey and hill with like watkins and um hardman um and the running backs but like they really do rely so heavily on those two guys that when they're not bringing it um, and they were, you know, just as bad as culprits as anybody um, they had two really big drops. Um, Kelsey on the third down after Tampa got stood or KC had the uh, goal line stand, you know, that was a gigantic drop. Um, and then uh, Tyreek Hill had one of them hit off his face mask as well. Yeah. I mean, Kelsey ended up putting up, his typical numbers granted most of those were in garbage time, but yeah, they completely shut down Hill and it seemed like granted Hill's also such a deep threat and Holmes didn't have any time to, to even to find him on those patterns. Yeah. Let's man. get to your third takeaway, Kyle. Yeah. Um, I think that overall, given the way that Mahomes played, he, he can't really be blamed. Like you can't really place this one on Patrick Mahomes Granted, the loss column will always reflect that. Um, what do you mean, Mahomes? Mahomes can no longer be considered the goat now. Well, <laughs> that's what they said. Yeah, <laughs> in the world of hot takes, but I mean, honestly, like, how can you surpass Brady at this point? But you know, if if Mahomes is playing till he's forty three, um, he can rack up the Super Bowls as well. But you know, if there was any other quarterback in the league playing behind that offensive line, um, you know, they they probably lose by forty. Like they get blown out. Um, and Mahomes, like I said, is, you know, the, the Tampa D line is going through Kansas city, like shit through a goose. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, he's out there running around making plays um, and he was hitting guys in the hands. There were drop passes, penalties, the timeout sequence at the end of the first half. That was um, ridiculous. That yeah, it basically just gifted Tampa Bay a touchdown. Uh, you know, it was just sloppy all around by, Seemingly everybody on the team besides uh, Mahomes. Yeah. I mean, we hear from everyone that the theory that quarterbacks will last longer than ever in this league because they don't get hit as much, which we know is true, but Mahomes got killed in this game. I mean, if you bring pressure and a guy like Mahomes, who's so reluctant to get rid of the ball and when you're down by 20 in a Super Bowl, you're not just going to toss it to the coaches on the sidelines. He was getting killed. Yeah. He got pressured 29 times, um, which is a pretty unfathomable number. Um, and he was getting like twisted all around. He ran for what was the, the stat? 500 yards he was running before he uh, either made his pass attempt or got sacked. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to drop a, a cliche here, but it, it's so true in sports that 
these teams look so invincible and so unbeatable until they immediately don't. You know what I mean? The yeah. Chiefs, at least, I mean, we're not the only people that liked the Chiefs on Sunday. I think it was 80% of the betters took the Chiefs. Yeah. And those people, including us, were all walking around thinking the Chiefs are going to kill the Bucks. And 10 minutes into the game, not even. It was like that. Run. It already yeah. looks like the Chiefs are, are the team that's going to play from behind and that the better team on the field is the Bucks. Yeah. It's amazing how quick things can change. And to treat and to uh match your cliche with another um <laughs> uh just the whole defense wins championships, man. We forget about it, but it just came down to, you know, how are you gonna bet against Patrick Mahomes? But it was so clear, it should have been so clear to us the match like that he was gonna be forced to do, you know, more than what was really reasonable, but he's done it up to this point, but yeah, like you said, he got the absolute shit kicked out of him. Yeah, Kyle, do you think that we say – everyone always says, oh, the Super Bowl game is always such a weird game, such strange things happen. Do you think we say that partially because, obviously, it's the most magnified and overanalyzed game? Or do you think it's actually true? Because that was the first game that the Chiefs under Mahomes didn't score a touchdown, and I think we could both confidently say that will never happen again. Yeah, and not just that, the punter on the Chiefs was, was soiling bugging. himself the entire night. Yeah, he was bugging out. I think emotions have to be like beyond through the roof. Like blood pressures are high because everyone doesn't want to make – I wonder if they're thinking more, I want to go out and make the play, or I do not want to be the one to cost us. I think there's um, one – yeah, I think exactly right. I, think I mean, I think other. that probably says a lot about each guy's mindset, but – I think I would be not wanting to screw up more than I would want to be like the one, you know, having the team on my back. Um, and maybe that's, that's what causes like a lot of the weird play calling, the weird decision-making, like it is the most like, grandiose stage in like American sports. So. Yeah. I yeah. think someone that exemplifies that is, and I think we wouldn't really look at a position like this to um, be reminded of it, but a guy like Leonard Fournette who didn't look good all year, and then in the playoffs was was a complete difference maker for Tampa Bay. Maybe that is a guy that actually does step up and does like the big moment. I mean, it's strange to say that about a running back, but I even heard him after the game talking about his uh, being refused to get tackled. And you just watched that game and it looked like no one wanted a part of him. And that was a guy that got a DNP later, late in the season when he was healthy, he was that bad. Yeah, he really exemplified like the whole – like the, the tilts of the toughness was so heavily in Tampa Bay's favor, not only in this game, but throughout the playoff round, like it seems like some sort of a minds mindset flipped. Um, and it might've been against, uh, you know, after their first round uh, or the first game with the chiefs, like maybe they learned something, maybe they learned like they have to have a certain mindset, maybe, you know, leadership took over or they finally molded together. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, as we mentioned, I just think that, but for now, the Brady-led team just plays with more swagger and more confidence than, than especially come playoff league. time. Yeah, there's nothing. Uh, not much can beat experience, Kyle. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, number four. Let's hear it. Um. So, what I I, I referred to it as uh, the Chiefs on on switch finally malfunctioned. Um, you know, we've grown very accustomed to seeing the chiefs, um, you know, give up large leads throughout the playoffs and big moments. And each and every time they've been able to, you know, ride Mahomes, ride Hill or Hill and Kelsey, the playmaking, the offense, 
you know, they've been able to dig themselves out of holes and like, you know, they turn the on switch on, like we see basketball teams do it in the playoffs when it matters most. Um, but for the chiefs, it would happen on a game to game basis, but you know, it finally malfunctioned. Like they finally just couldn't get it together. And a lot of that is on the offensive line, but you know, the playmakers didn't step up the coaching. Like we said, it was sloppy penalties, you know, they didn't pick each other up um, and they finally stalled out. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that is on coaching. I mean, we've seen, um, certain teams in other sports we've seen in the NBA, a lot of the Cleveland Cavaliers led LeBron teams were, um, em- employed this strategy of turning the on switch on in the playoffs. But I think a lot of it does come down to coaching. The thing is the chiefs went 14 and two. I mean, it's not as if they, I mean, it's yeah. not as if they gave away games in the regular season, but I mean, we saw they played games closer than they should have. And I even sat there on Sunday saying when they were down, I think it was nine, nothing or 10, nothing saying, uh, no, I'm not worried about it. That they don't start trying until they're down the score, but I was lying. I was concerned about it. The game felt different. Yeah. I think people across America were saying that trying to convince themselves. Cause I know I said it too. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I mean, I think, I think it comes down to the coaching staff though, like an on off switch in sports, which we've seen, we've seen for years with across different teams, but I think it comes down to the coach. I mean, you, you, you want to try to, you want to try to build your team so that they're throughout the season, getting better and better throughout the season. You want them to be that able to feel like the chiefs got better throughout the year. They kind of just stayed at this level where yeah. because their offense was so electric, they can kind of make up for any flaws. Um, it was definitely place. a lot of peaks and valleys and you want to make sure that your team is peaking at the right time, but you know, it goes back to that comfort or just, yeah, the, the comfort in that they, were able to do it each and every time they were able to dig themselves out. So maybe like they got in the mindset, like, all right, we can, you know, kind of field the game out in the first quarter. Um, and we'll always be able to ride Mahomes back into the game, but they really just got punched in the mouth and couldn't, you know, they were down for the count. Yeah. No, but yeah, no. like you said, um, back for the coaching, like um, Todd Bowles and that defense really kind of painted a masterpiece um you know they they forced um you know they were forcing like run looks they were forcing underneath passes and the chiefs just wouldn't take it they wanted the big play yeah i mean how much do you think that the reason that succeeded is because the reason they were able to do that also is because they got an early lead so the chiefs were just so reluctant to run the football maybe they panicked we're down nine our defense looks like it can't stop a nosebleed we're going to have to um, throw the football to get back in this game rather than stay patient. Yeah. I think and it's that's a, not I, their game. They're going to go down with Mahomes, not Alaire, who yeah, looked good. Yeah. Yeah. He did. Um, I feel like he was getting like at least five yards every carry, but you were just alluding to it. Yeah. I think they were just riding with the guy who's gotten them there. Um, I mean, he, he's a Super Bowl MVP. Like we were calling him like the, the, you know, it was like a goat versus goat matchup for a reason. Like, you know, and even in a losing battle, like, like we said, like he played out of his mind for as bad as their team got beaten. Um, so I understand the confidence in riding with him, but you know, um, obviously it didn't pan out. You know, what we should have realized in this game is these goat versus goat matchups or these sexy matchups 
like when a Jacob deGrom faces off against a Justin Verlander, you're like, oh my God, the Mets are going to, they're going to beat him one nothing in this game. He's going to go eight scoreless. That's that shit never happens. It never plays out. Like it never plays it. out. So like if we're sitting here saying, it would always oh be God. like a five, three. Yeah. yeah someone's out. They're going to beat the bucks 41, 38. They're each going to throw <laughs> for 403 touchdowns. That's never how this goes. I mean, I know, I mean, I know Brady threw for what three, four touchdowns. It's not like Brady, I mean, he did what he had to do. Obviously, they played a more conservative game at the end because they were leading. But neither of these guys put up the, the games that they're capable of. Granted, as I mentioned, Brady didn't have to. But for us to sit here and really think we were going to get that game because this is the go for scout matchup, there was no fucking way. Yeah, we were being uh, hopeless romantics in a sense. Um, but the Brady game was a lot like the one against the Packers. Like, solid first half and then just ride it out in the second half. Yeah, I mean, he, they just made it look so easy. And now now we're going to be sitting there next year. Oh, they got a full training camp. They've got they got time. How long do you together. think he enjoys this Super Bowl win for before he's like, I'm sure he's already like back in the lab, like getting treatment, getting ready for next year. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a few weeks. I mean, we saw with the zip that he had on his ball. Why are more athletes not dedicating themselves to these certain diets? They obviously work. I mean, I know that at the same time, not all of them have the financial means to do so. I think a lot of them are. I think they're like starting to invest. Like that's why you see like primes starting to last until your your mid to late thirties. It's just that Brady and LeBron were the really the first ones to do it. So they're the they're the oldest in the league for both of their leagues, and they the were pioneers. the ones to invest. Yeah, they really were. Yeah, I mean, we'll see if this continues. We'll see if Mahomes tries to adopt that strategy. One would think he's probably got 20 years left in this league, which is silly to think about. Yeah. All right. Final takeaway, Vaughn? Final takeaway um, is that the the Bucks got rewarded for going all in on this season. Um, you know, Super Bowl windows appear to be, you know, they may not be as wide as, uh, as they, uh, you know, sometimes appear. Um, and you really have to go be aggressive go make the moves that you think can get you to that championship caliber and credit to them uh, for doing so. The, the head coach and the GM, um, the GM, Jason Light's been there. I think this was his seventh year. They hadn't been to the playoffs before. Like if they don't go to the postseason again, you know, he could very well easily have gotten fired, but you know, you go out, you get Brady, you get Gronk, you get AB, you get Leonard Fournette, all of whom scored in this game. Um, and you become champions. Like you got to, you got to risk it for the biscuit, like uh, Bruce Arians says. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we see with the people sometimes will question a signing or say, well, you sign him to seven years and those last three years, he's not going to be worth it. Well, if in those seven years you win a title, then it's worth, worth it. There are only two teams that went after Tom Brady. I mean, I know he looked a little bit washed against the Titans last year in the playoffs and throughout the season, they didn't finish off strong. But think about that. Tom Brady was a free agent and one team outside of the Patriots tried to sign him. That's a joke. Yeah. It seems really stupid in hindsight. And as does betting against them in the playoffs, he yeah. just continues to amaze, but you see, it'll be interesting to see if teams start to like adapt or, you know, adopt this, uh, this mindset. Like I mentioned that, you know, the Rams are doing this, um, you know, consistently, they haven't had a first round pick since they drafted Jared Goff already obviously just traded him for Matt Stafford, like uh, with additional first round picks, whoever gets Deshaun Watson's going to have to go all in for him, um, you know, and just kind of prove that like 
you know, if you want to get that, uh, you know, if you want to get to that championship caliber, you got to, uh, you got to go all in. Absolutely. I mean, it's, what are you, you're either looking to be a, a 500 team, maybe losing that first round you're going on. I mean, it depends on this. I think certain markets feel more pressure to stay above water than others. Um, I think there's certain teams in big markets that no matter how much they struggle, will still have the income. And we but, see it a lot with basketball right yeah. now. Think about some of these first, these trades. Like Think about Drew a team Holiday. like the Magic. I know. What are they trying to accomplish? Yeah. It, it, like they're, these teams go years and years like building up the farm system, like building up the culture, but like it's the one splash move that's really going to, um, you know, get you over the top. Yeah, I mean, we hear about it all the time in sports. Like, oh, don't rush the development. Don't rush what this team has. If you and that's it, it varies case by case. But like, you got to understand like what your roster is, what the surroundings are. If there are like a couple pieces out there that could put you over the hump, like that's when you got to go do it. Yeah, I mean, Brady's just able to do certain things that no one else in this league seems capable of. They I mean, they signed Antonio Brown, who's out of his mind, and we didn't hear one thing about him the entire season. He put his head down and was yeah, a nice number a three receiver. I know, man. And he scored in the he scored in the Super Bowl. He got rewarded. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing else we could say about Tom Brady. Yeah. We're already hearing about thoughts for next season, um, and I'm sure we'll get into that at some point, but. Yeah, man. As much as as much as we rode the Chiefs, I'm not upset that Tom Brady won. I don't understand how I don't understand disliking Tom Brady. This goes back to our whole feeling on you got to just enjoy greatness, and I fully appreciate it. To it. Yeah, you got to appreciate it. Um, yeah. And who knows? He could be racking up ring number eight. But we got to remember, like, we let's just not go against him in the playoffs next year. We'll see how that goes, guys. Yeah. Got, <laughs> yeah. We have the stink. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We have this thing. All right, Kyle, thank you.